Every Sunday here at Windsor Road, we share as a part of our worship service um, communion or the Lord's Supper. And in just a little bit, we're going to do that. We will pass around some bread, and um, then we'll pass around uh, cups of juice. And we know that this bread symbolizes something. This bread means this, or, and this juice means you know, that. And have you ever wondered why we do this? What is all this about? Is it just a meaningless ritual? How did all of this get started? And the verses that Brenda just read explain the origin of the Lord's Supper, communion. And it's why we do this. It's why Christians for the last 2,000 years have had the Lord's Supper as a part of their worship service. And it's rooted in a meal, a meal uh, that the Hebrew people participated in even long before the time of Christ. And if I could say it in a sentence, I would say that communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, the great thanksgiving, communion is a meal about a memory. It's a meal about a memory. In communion, in the Lord's Supper, we remember the meal is about remembering and commemorating the mighty act of God on behalf of his people. And what we're going to see in these verses is how Jesus, he first begins with a memory that's very familiar with God's people of old, and then, like out of nowhere, a new meaning emerges. Jesus takes this very familiar memory and, and it just pops with a new memorial, one that we remember even today. And it's like, it's, it's like we're in one moment watching an old black and white television and then pop comes this LED HD TV. That's what's going on here. And so what I want us to do is I want to first start with the black and white television set and talk us through this meal with a memory. Now, Americans know all about remembering significant events through a meal. I mean, we're pros at that. Last Thanksgiving, I can tell you what it was you had around your table. And you can tell me what I had around my table. Why? Because we're red-blooded Americans, that's why. And we remember through the Thanksgiving feast, the plight of the pilgrims centuries ago, you see? Well, Jesus participated in a meal that had a memory in this supper. It was called the Passover supper. 
The Passover was a feast that was held in, in which God's people commemorated. It was the most important holiday in, uh, among the Hebrew people in which God's people remembered and commemorated God's mighty act in delivering his people from centuries of Egyptian slavery. And so the meal would be a reenactment of the events surrounding the liberation of God's people from Egyptian bondage. And so through the elements of the meal, God's people would retell what God had done, how God had sent his servant Moses to confront Pharaoh of old, to say, you let my people go so that they may worship me, and how Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and then how God, through his servant Moses, sent ten plagues intending to break the grip of Pharaoh upon God's people. And God had told Moses ahead of time, Pharaoh's heart will be hardened. You keep preaching my, you keep telling Pharaoh what it is I want from him. And so God sent these plagues. So there was the, there was the plague of the Nile River turning into blood. And then there was the plague of uh, gnats infesting all of Egypt. Oh my goodness, what was that like? And then there was the plague of frogs infesting all of the country. There was the plague of darkness. And uh, these plagues uh, were intended to punish Pharaoh for his unjust treatment of enslaving God's people all of these years, uh, but yet there was, well, there was theology there because each of those plagues was in fact an assault against an Egyptian idol. So there was the gnat god. Uh, there was the sun god. Uh, so, you know, there was the locust god, you see? And so God said, no, you're not real. I'm real. There is one God, and you're not him. I am the Lord, your God. And still, Pharaoh resisted until the 10th plague. The 10th plague concerned the firstborn of Egypt. You see, Pharaoh fashioned himself as a god. And Pharaoh fashioned his firstborn son as the heir incarnate God. And the Lord will not share his glory. There is one God. And so the Lord told Moses, you tell Pharaoh that I am going to bring this plague upon this land and it's going to devastate the country. And on that night, God sent an angel to go throughout the land of Egypt and that angel put to death every firstborn son. Only those who had the blood of a lamb smeared on the lintel of the door. Only those were saved. And there was wailing and crying throughout Egypt. And the very next day, Pharaoh let God's people go. The very Pharaoh's own son was taken. The Lord, he is God. And Israel left. And, and so, see, this meal commemorates that event. And through the Passover feast and the foods which had symbols, uh, this meal would be retold so that God's people would know, here is who you are. 
And here is where you came from. And here is who our God is. And here is what he did. And um, so this meal that Jesus shared in, well, first of all, you need to understand that this meal took place over several hours. And, 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 and it, it didn't look like this, okay? It didn't. That's a nice painting, Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. But that's a very Western interpretation of uh, communion. More likely, uh, the scene looked like this. We would, there would have been like a, a kind of a horseshoe figure uh, there in that large upper room. And so there would have been like couches, and they would have been reclining on those couches and leaning on an, uh, their elbow and eating the, the, the meal that would have taken place over the course of several hours on that Passover feast. That's really what it would have looked like, you see. And, and the meal, we know, uh, by Jesus' day, was structured around four glasses of wine, four cups of wine. There was the cup of, I will take you out. I will, or rather, I will bring you out. I will bring you out. There was the cup of, I will deliver you. I will deliver you. There was the cup of, I will redeem you. I will redeem you. And then the fourth cup is, I will take you to be my people. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Four cups, four glasses of wine. And those cups were based on Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And Exodus 6, 6 and 7 say, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Four cups. That's how this supper would have been structured in Jesus' day. That's in the retelling of the story, and the fellowship around the table, People are remembering. It's a meal with a memory. The memory of who God is and the mighty act that he accomplished. And so what I want to do is I just want to take us briefly through each of these cups in that Passover feast that Christ celebrated there in the upper room with his disciples. Now then, before the meal even started, the father of the household. And keep in mind, we're talking a meal that took place in the city of Jerusalem. In the year AD 66, Josephus, uh, who was a Jewish historian, said that in AD 66, over 250,000 lambs were slaughtered in Jerusalem. Now think about that for a minute, because each lamb would then feed, I don't know, between six to ten people. Do the math on that. That's why this city was absolutely jam-packed. And so you have uh, household after household after household after household going through these four cups. Talk about solidarity and community and unity of a people. This is who we are. This is what our God has done for us. And so in each of those little households, the father 
would preside over the table. Uh, The father would then assume the role of the spiritual leader of the household, the shepherd, the pastor, the rabbi of the household. And the evening would begin as he presides over the table with a benediction, a blessing. The father would bless, who would he bless? His family, the individuals around the table there. Think about that for a minute. He would look at his sons and daughters in the eye and he would speak a word of blessing and encouragement to them. Now let me just say this. If you don't take away anything else from today, all right, you can take away this. Fathers, you are the pastors of your household. And do you know, do you know the power of your blessing and speaking a word of blessing into the life of your child? Do you know the power of looking your son into the face and saying, I want you to know, son, I am so proud of you. I'm proud of how God has made you. I cannot wait to see the future that he has for you. And I want you to know that his will, his way is good and perfect and pleasing. And if you will stay on that path, which I know you can with his help, I want to encourage you. Can you imagine what that would do to the life? Your chi- I can tell you this. Your child wants that right now. Right now, your child, is, your child needs the life-giving encouragement from the Father. I still want my Father's encouragement at 51. And I can tell you, so does your 13-year-old or your 17-year-old or your 24-year-old. Oh, they may not say it, but I can tell you, they want it. And not only, not only your children but your spouse to go around the table and then to lock eyes with your beloved and to say, I want you to know you are, you are my standard of beauty. You are my standard of beauty. Not some airbrushed photograph in Sports Illustrated. Not some playboy pornographic smutty image. But my dear, you are my standard of beauty. I'm telling you, husbands and fathers, you have the power of encouragement. And oh, that blessing and that benediction would set such a powerful tone in your household. Jesus is setting that tone at the beginning of this meal as he offers the benediction I hear him looking into the eyes of each of the disciples and speaking a blessing into their lives. And then he raises the first cup. This cup that says, the cup that says, uh, I will bring you out. I will bring you out, cup. Um, At this point, a child at the table would ask a prescribed question. And this was the question. Father, why is this night different from all of the other nights? And the father would say, it's because on this night, the Lord will bring us out. The Lord, I will bring you out because I have seen 
your affliction. I have seen the pain. I have, I have, I have seen what the taskmasters are doing to you. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. And so when you come around this table, you don't have to pretend that you haven't been afflicted. This is a safe place to confess your affliction. And this room is a safe place too. I just wonder, I wonder uh, if you could choose the vehicle that would best describe how your week has been, I wonder what that vehicle would be. For some of you, it'd be a limousine. It's been that good of a week. I mean, you're just in a limousine, and if that's, how, if that's been your week, give me a ride. Huh? A limousine. For some of you, it wouldn't be a limousine. It would be an ambulance. You were brought here, in an, and you're on a gurney. And you are hurting bad, but you're here. And still others, a hearse. Because your soul feels dead, and you need God's word to give you life. So we don't have to pretend when we're around this table. Because the eye will bring you out, cup says. God sees our affliction. He's paying attention. Even if it takes 430 years for him to respond, he knows. He knows your suffering. And in his timing, he is going to act in a way that is totally going to amaze you. And why? Because he loves us. His amazing love, his love never fails. His love never gives up. His love never runs out. Well, after the I will bring you out cup, Jesus then lifted the I will deliver you cup, the deliverance cup. And this was a cup of thanksgiving and praise for God intervening in the lives of his people who cried out for him. You say, what's the difference between I will bring you out and I will deliver you? Oh, here's the difference. You see, it's one thing to know that you're stuck in the mud. It's one thing to know that. And it's a whole other thing to be humble enough to ask for help. To realize that your life has become unmanageable. To realize that, you know, I'm stuck and I'm not going to be able to get out of this on my own. I'm going to need help. And so as a part of this Passover remembrance of God's mighty acts, part of it is the recognition that God, I'm crying out. I need, I can't do this by myself. I can't. It's just become too much for me. And if you read through passages of Scripture, especially in the Psalms, there are Psalms whose sole purpose is to communicate this, this Lord, I need, I need your help, and I thank you for delivering me. I'm thinking of Psalm 116, verses 1 through 6 and verse 16. And this kind of psalm, this kind of theme would have then been expressed among the meal as the family gathered together. And so I would like for us to do that. I'm going to read the letters in white, and I'd like for the congregation to respond in in the letters in the Illini orange. All right? Let's go. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. 
because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave overcame me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Truly, I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. That's the cup of deliverance. The cup that says, God, you've delivered me, you know, in ways I wasn't even aware that I needed to be delivered. Isn't that what we read in that song? The Lord protects the unwary. That means the unaware. I, I didn't know I needed protection from this side, but you were there. And only afterwards, when I look back, I say, God, you were, th- I was vulnerable and I didn't even know it. But you came through. You delivered me. Your mighty arm outreached and helped. And so here is where the meal proper then would have been served. And, uh, Let me just take you through the symbolism behind each of these meals. Why there's, uh, there are the the greens that you see at about, uh, I don't know, two o'clock and seven o'clock. Those are the bitter herbs, the bitterness and the affliction. And uh, then there's there's the lamb, the shank bone, that arm of the Lord that he provided. And then there's the, at about 5 o'clock, you see, what is that? That's kind of a fruit mash is what that is. And so it's sweet. And it, it symbolizes the mortar uh, between the bricks as God's people built the cities of Egypt, that red mortar there. And you say, well, why would it be sweet? Because, because the meaning, behind that meaning is that even in the bondage of slavery, there is this hope that God is going to act in such a way as to totally take us out of slavery and that we will know that only he did that. And that takes us to the egg, which is a symbol of hope and uh, revitalization and, and um, a new life in the gathering place of the temple. And so this meal that takes place where God's people are remembering his mighty hand. I will will bring you out. I will deliver you. And then after the meal, Jesus would have taken this third cup, the I will redeem you cup, the cup of redemption. And right then, Jesus would have been talking and, and, and the disciples would have fully expected Christ uh, to talk about the, the lamb that was slain, the lamb 
uh, whose blood was going to be pasted over the doorpost. The disciples would have fully expected Jesus to talk about the angel of death passing over the Hebrew family. The disciples would have fully expected Christ to talk about how the blood or the life of the lamb was the substitutionary sacrifice which shielded God's people from God's justice. But here, at this point, Jesus says something that totally takes the disciples off guard. Jesus takes the bread and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. And then he takes the cup and he said, this is my blood. And this is where the the black and white television becomes, you know, HDTV in crystal clarity where Jesus reveals his mission and who he is and why he came. And here out of this story of old emerges the story of God himself coming in the flesh. Jesus reinterprets this historic Hebrew Passover through the lens of his mission to seek and save the lost. Jesus is saying that every earlier Passover celebration was in fact a shadow of the real Passover lamb. And he's speaking of himself, Christ coming to take away the sin of the world. Christ coming, the king himself comes to sacrifice himself on behalf of his people. In every other empire of every other nation, the king commands the people to die for him. But in Christ's kingdom, it is the king who lays his life down for his people. And so you see, Jesus as king, Jesus is not going to send his legions of angels to to once and for all overthrow in some insurrectionist manner the power of the Roman Empire because Christ was not about defeating the power of the Roman Empire. Christ was about defeating the power behind the power of the Roman Empire. And that power was the power of demonic forces, the power of Satan, the work of the evil one. And and so what Christ would do is he would offer himself and Satan would expend every last bullet of his arsenal and exhaust the full force of evil on the Lamb of God there at the cross. And there, by, by, by Christ's power, after in his death and in his burial, after Satan's last bullet in his arsenal was totally expended by the power of God the Father, the Son would be raised never to die again. Jesus came to destroy the work of the evil one. And that was always his plan. Always his plan, church family. That's why the scriptures say that Jesus was crucified before the foundations of the world. And that's 
helpful because here we learn then why in verses 12 through 16 we have such detail concerning the arrangement of the Lord's Supper. In other words, there's nothing accidental going on here. In verses 12 through 16, Jesus says to his disciples, okay, now here's the plan. I want you two to go into the city. And remember, this city is clogged with people. So you, you two go into the city and then when you go into the city, then a guy who's carrying a water jug, he'll meet you. You're not going to meet him but he's going to find you and you follow him and then he's going to take you to the owner of this house and then you ask the owner of the house, where is the room uh, that the teacher uh, has requested for the preparation of the Passover feast and the owner of the house is going to take you to this furnished and prepared room. It is all ready to go according to the plan. Don't you see, Jesus did not die as an unfortunate victim of events out of his control. He did not die as a victim of history, as someone once said, because he is history. Don't you find it interesting in Mark's gospel and in the scripture reading that here this is the Passover feast, the feast of the Passover lamb, but there's no actual mention of the main course, is there? You mean there, there wasn't lamb? Of course there was. It, this was not a vegetarian Passover. So what kind of Passover would be celebrated without mentioning of a lamb? And here's what we learn. Here's what we learn. There was no lamb that was mentioned on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. Jesus is presiding over this feast And Jesus himself, he is the feast. We feast on him because on the cross, Jesus got what we deserved. The sin and the guilt and the brokenness of this world fell upon him. He loved us so much that he took on divine justice so that we could be passed over forever. He is our substitute. And he was the substitute for the very ones around that table. Listen, when we consider this cup, this cup of redemption, this is my body, this is my blood, which is poured out violently for, we mustn't think of the disciples as the good guys and the Pharisees as the bad guys. No, 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 no. Because what's going on here? Jesus says in this passage of scripture, he says, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. What? Isn't that interesting? Here the Passover feast is the celebration of this victory, and yet in the celebration of victory, Jesus unveils treachery that's going on. And of course, we know that it's Judas who betrays Jesus. But you know what? All of them betrayed him. Judas betrayed him out of cash. The others betrayed him out of cowardness. Oh yeah, look at verse 50 in chapter 14. Then everyone deserted him and fled. So you see, it's not a matter of the disciples being good guys and the Pharisees being bad guys. No, no, no. All of us are in need. And you know, that was true even in the very first Passover. It was. 
why that angel of death came and peered into the window of that Egyptian house and saw all of those Egyptian idols and then locked eyes on that firstborn and took the life of that firstborn and then went to the next house, a Hebrew house. And that angel peered into the window of that Hebrew house and you know what the angel saw? The same Egyptian idols. Oh, yes. And that angel locked eyes on the firstborn but then glanced up at the doorpost to see the slain blood of the lamb. And the angel moved on. You see, the the Israelites, they worshiped the same idols. They did. They said, well, what made the difference? Grace made the difference. Oh, yeah. Yeah, later on in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, Joshua would would say to the Israelites, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So you see, the Israelites were under just as much condemnation as the Egyptians and the disciples were under just as much condemnation as the Pharisees. We all need Jesus, don't we? Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the Christian gospel says that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. And I am so loved that Jesus was glad to die for me. And this leads to so much humility and so much confidence, deep humility and deep confidence at one and the same time. And it totally undermines both swaggering and sniveling. So I cannot feel superior to anyone and at the same time, I don't have to prove anything to anyone. I don't think more of myself and I don't think less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Because of Jesus, my life prayer now becomes the prayer of John the Baptist. He must become greater, and I must become lesser. And why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And now we can share in his supper. I will bring you out. I will deliver you, I will redeem you, and then the fourth cup, I will take you, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. The fourth cup. You know, some scholars do not feel that Christ actually drank of this fourth cup, and it's because of what is said in verse 25. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So this final cup here represents the final gathering of God's people in the new heavens and the new earth where Jesus will then, as we surround him, around that great banquet feast in new bodies, the final defeat of Satan, and the final glorious bodies that we will share 
as heirs of his kingdom, he will then lift his glass and then we will enjoy. So you see, so you see, the Lord's Supper is not just an event that where we look past, but it's an event, it's an experience where we look ahead to our destiny. Every time we share around this table, we remember that one day in new bodies, we will join Jesus at the ultimate banquet feast. Church family, we can't lose. We can't. And so that's why we can go out and serve in love. That's why we can participate in short-term mission experiences sharing the love of Christ and the light of Christ. That's why we can uh, share in this coming Habitat for Humanity build. That's why we can do something like even bringing uh, groceries, as many of you have this morning, to fill our food pantry. And that's why we can live in confidence because we know that we can't lose. So who are you now? And, and what's happening here? <laughs> well, we know, don't we? We know who we are. We know who God is. And we know what he's done. I was a slave. I was under the sentence of death. But I took shelter underneath the blood of the Lamb and escaped the bondage. And now I am privileged to live with God. And He lives in our midst. And we are now following Him to the promised land. And that's our story. It folds itself into the great story of God. And if you trust Jesus' sacrifice of substitution... The greatest longing of your heart will be satisfied. And one day, one day, we will sit around that table and we we will look King Jesus in the eye as he celebrates this last glass, the eternal feast in the promised kingdom of God. I can't wait to go to heaven. What about you? And it says, when they'd sung a hymn, they went out. Why don't we do that?